Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani. And if you're new to the show, welcome aboard 45 years in journalism between the two of us. Over 35 covering sports in the Houston area. And Sean, the story the past few days, the Astros split their first season series with the White Sox 2-2. We're recording Monday before the Tigers series. Just so you know, it may come out after, probably is going to come out after the Tigers series. Let's throw out our three main takeaways to start the show. And I'm going to go to you, Sean, for the first one. What do you got? Um, Jordan, Abreu, Pena, Tucker, all off to really good starts. It's a lot of fun. That was my biggest takeaway. Obviously, you know, with spring training, you know, Jordan with the hand situation, Jose Abreu, you know, uh, there's been a lot of naysayers since the Astros and Jim Crane signed into that big deal. Like, oh man, there's going to be the steep drop off. Hey, guy produced in the opening weekend. Pena continues to do what he doing what he's doing in the World Series of postseason. Uh, the, about the last month of last regular season. Dude's on a roll. Um, and Tucker, shift, what shift? Screw the shift. I just hit baseballs for a living. <laughs> just doing his thing, man. I love it. It's It's been fun to see. You know, the Strohs are two and two, but I felt like their starting pitching was good enough. And this is maybe another one, but their starting pitching was good enough to really put themselves in position to win all of those ball games. Mm, I don't know about that. Arquiti was pretty rough. Uh, but yeah, the rest of the guys I thought did decent enough. Um, before I get to the first one, just want to remind everybody to subscribe and comment on YouTube if you're watching, but want to hear us while you're driving, shopping, working out, whatever you're doing, listen on the run by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. And Sean, my biggest takeaway, my first big takeaway anyway, is how concerned should we be about Ryan Presley? The Astros claimed he was under the weather, but during the opener Roger Clements pointed out on the broadcast, Presley shaking his arm out between pitches, and he had a bad outing that night. It's a little odd that they'd let a guy under the weather, though, still be hanging around with other players the next few days, which is what they did. Sean, doesn't that typically mean he's got some sort of cold or flu if he's, you know, not feeling well? Yeah, you know, and allergies, you know, still kind of a thing, you know, with people with all the pollen and everything going on. You yeah, know, allergies doesn't make sense, though, for somebody that's not good enough to pitch for three days. I mean, I sure. matter much Presley. I, I say that because you know as well as I do, as well as any other Astro fan, whatever words come out of the Astros' mouths in terms of, like, an injury, they tell you nothing. Nothing. So under the weather could mean, you know, he had the craps for, like, the last 24 hours. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. I do know this. Clemens pointing things out during the broadcast worries me a little bit because I really liked him during the broadcast. I I thought he was sounding good. I was enjoying the game and it was kind of refreshing because he was talking about some things throughout the course of the game that your average Joe Blow analyst typically don't talk about. You know, they become very robotic too. this being his first time that at least I can remember him being in this analyst role on TV. I thought he brought some really good content and um, some knowledge uh, to the broadcast. So that kind of worries me a little bit because it is about the eyes. It's kind of like a scout, right? These analysts, they're kind of like scouts for us because they're able to talk about, at least they should be, what they're seeing, what we aren't seeing with our naked eye that maybe we're going to pay attention to a little bit more as the game goes along or the next game comes up. So yeah, I take 
Um, I take what Clemens said, not with a grain of salt, but I kind of take it to heart. And, you know, the guy identified something and who knows these Astro pitchers better than him as an analyst versus, you know, any other Joe Blow. Yeah, it could be my paranoia, but the fact that Roger said it, like you said, is a big deal to me. Put him on more Astros broadcast, by the way. Uh, wait, what's your yeah. number two? Uh, my number two, you know, I, I kind of mentioned it, you know, is the pitching. I thought, you know, the pitching was good enough to put themselves in position to win all of these ball games for this opening weekend. I know the numbers, you know, on Urquidy weren't pretty. Uh, but what, you know, I did notice is that, you know, the walks weren't crazy. No starting pitcher allowed more than three earned runs and none of them. I think it was Luis Garcia. Um, maybe through the most pitches out of any Astro starter uh, through the first four games, which is at 91. They were all on around an 80, 85 pitch limit, you know, if they could get that far without being in trouble, which they did. And I just think like, hey, they made it out. They were healthy. They were throwing the ball as well as to be expected with this weird cockamamie spring training slash world baseball classic schedule that a lot of those guys had. So I was encouraged uh, by that. I guess I'm going to be the cynic because my second takeaway, also not good. How delicate is Jordan's hand? Should we be worried he couldn't even play four straight games to start the season? And Sean, I'm surprised they couldn't even wait till game five when you're playing a much weaker opponent, especially with Altuve out of the lineup to rest Jordan. It just didn't make sense to me why you have to rest him after three games. I, I just think it kind of speaks to what the Astros are doing, you know, early on this season, maybe with a number of these guys, they're kind of taking it slow. They want to make sure they kind of get through maybe the first couple of weeks, I think as healthy as possible, as guys are starting to kind of get into the flow of things, the, the, the schedule that is 162 game baseball season. So, and maybe they're taking a little extra precaution too, because it is Jordan, because it is a hand and, if you put a gun to his head, is he going to tell you that it's 100%? Probably not. You know, is it closer to maybe 90? Yeah. I mean, I would believe that. And, you know, they certainly know. And I think they've got a good system in terms of internally how they're dealing with injuries and the respect that they're going to pay to the players and the respect that the players have to the training staff and the coaching staff, their, their honesty. Like, they're going to tell them, or at least they're going to be able to identify it from the player that, hey, this guy's not 100%, so we're going to dial it back a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not, anything that happens, Robert, to be honest with you, within, you know, the first month of the season, I don't get all crazy about it necessarily because, I mean, I know what these guys have done. I know what they're all about. We know what they're all capable of. I mean, there's really – you know, maybe a, a couple of guys here and there, if you're talking about a Jokes or a Hensley or uh, a John Air Diaz, you know, those are the ones that I want to pay attention to that I want to see. But the rest of them, I know what the heck they're capable of. So anything that they're doing that's kind of uncharacteristic from from a production standpoint, I don't get too worried about it so long as they're healthy at this point. Yeah, I don't know what that whole rant was because you're talking about I'm not worried about them. As players, I'm not worried about them as players. I'm worried about their health. That this That's my point for the first two. Presley and Jordan, I'm worried about the health. Yeah, yeah, worried about the health. But, you know, Jordan, <laughs> what's he hitting? Like close to 500. He's mashing already. So health seems to be okay. But I'm saying them pulling him out, you know, after three games, like maybe they're being a little precautious, which I have no problem with. Yeah, I, I'm not saying they shouldn't be precautious. I'm just worried that they have to be precautious and that this is a thing with somebody like Jordan. Yeah, uh, but I mean, you kind of, isn't that, isn't that part of the fear what we've been talking about all along is like why you don't want to trot this guy out there every single day in left field. It's the beautiful thing about having the DH now and being in the American League is that 
hey, you know what? You don't have to play the guy in the field. He can DH so long as his hands are good to go. You don't have to worry about it. You know, there's that kind of a rest day for him. And then two, you know, when this Astros offense gets back to full strength, which it's not near full strength right now, when they get Brantley back, when they get Altuve back, um, when Bregman gets rolling, you know, that was my third, really. An 0 for 16 start to the season for Alex Bregman. It's like, mm, A lot of know. strikeouts, too, which is uncharacteristic. That's the thing. You know, a lot of strikeouts. And I noticed that in the first game, you know, really with everybody. And I think even Clemens talked about it on the broadcast. It doesn't look like they're seeing the spin on the ball. They're not seeing the baseball at all. It's like they were up there guessing. And, you know, their butts were going one way. The bats were going the other way. Bregman looked probably worse than anybody at the plate, at least in my opinion. I'd like to see him swing in the bat with a little bit more confidence. And outside of last year, the guy's just a slow starter. I think he'll figure it out soon enough, though, as long as he's healthy. I trust him to figure it out because that dude's always working. Speaking of crap at the plate, and I'm going to talk about crap at the plate because my third takeaway, Mauricio Dubon. And it's bad enough that he's playing nearly every day at second base instead of Hensley. But Dusty's made it worse, Sean, by playing Dubon at second base Sunday. And you and I are talking before the Tigers game on Monday. He's also playing them Monday while Hensley is the DH Sunday and Monday. So, Sean, you basically can't even pinch hit for Dubon late in games because there's nobody else who can play second base. It's like Dusty is making a mistake and making another one on top of the mistake. Yeah, I don't get that. After the first game, you and I talked about it. We had the post game, right? And we're like, all right, where's Chaz? You know, where's Hensley? I figured, you know, you want to trot out your best lineup and – we still haven't seen what I thought was just the easiest, best lineup to, you know, pencil in for opening day. I mean, we're four games through the season, and, you know, here comes Chaz McCormick. He's only played in two of them. He's leading the team in stolen bases. The guy's hitting 400. The guy's a baller, okay? Play his button center field already. David Hensley, give him his reps at second base because he's the best guy for that situation, but also he's the best guy, I think, where when the game rolls along, you have options then. But he should be your starter without Altuve in the mix right now, and we just haven't seen it. I mean, you and I have already gone off on the Chaz McCormick thing, but one of the things that just goes under the radar about Chaz McCormick that people forget about, unless you really go into the stats, is he's clutch. And he was clutch in the playoffs. We saw that. But look at his numbers in the regular season in the clutch. Mm-hmm. He hits with an 8 77, I think it is, OPS with runners in scoring position for his career, while Jake Myers hits in the 600s OPS for his career. He's got a near 300 batting average with runners in scoring position, Sean. Yeah, and that's the makeup of guys, right? I mean, all of these guys have confidence, okay? They've all exceeded expectations at one level or another. That's why they're here playing for a world series winning ball club right but you get to a certain point you know the big leagues and you know some things that are innate begin to set in you know you show who you are you show your true colors what i mean by that it's a long way of saying Chaz has some nuts you know Chaz is a guy that's going to go up there at the plate you know he could be down oh two in a big spot in a tight situation late in a ball game where you need not just a quality at bat, but you need this guy to produce. He's got to find a way just to get on base. And that's what he's done. 
He sees the ball really well, I, I think. Uh, at least it's evident that he is early on this season. He's already worked three walks. On-base percentage is good. Batting average is good. What he's doing on the base paths has been good. He's just come to play. And maybe he's coming in as rightfully so. He should with a chip on his shoulder saying, Dusty, I deserve to be out here every day playing the field and getting these quality at bats for you. You know, I'm going to show you every reason why. And maybe Jake Myers is a complete opposite, you know, where he's been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And maybe he's got that little voice in the back of his head saying, man, come on. And he's pressing a little bit. And so maybe we're not seeing the real Jake Myers from a productive standpoint, but we're seeing the real Jake Myers from what's going on up here versus a guy who doesn't let anything affect him up here in Chasman McCormick because he trusts his game. Yeah, let me just uh, make it very clear my feelings on Jake Myers. The only edge that he has over Chas McCormick is his hair. That's it. The hair is about the only thing where I give Jake the edge. And I'm just going to say it right, right real quick. He should be, if the Astros are real about this, he should be worried about Justin Durden already up on his heels. You know, they got the first round pick from last year that Dana Brown talked about in spring training that he is not afraid to rush through this organization and challenge him. So we might see him in double A pretty quickly. And then Dana Brown might bring him up in September as an option, as a center field option. And if he performs the same way Hunter Brown did, we might see him if the Astros can get to October. Are you talking about Durden? Steve no, Durden? no, he's going to rush the Astros first round pick, the kid out of Tennessee. Oh. Oh, last year, through up through the organization. And he talked about that in spring training. He's not afraid to challenge these kids. And it was somebody that he was high on when yeah. he was with the Braves. So Jake Myers needs to be worried about his job for a couple of different reasons. And the Astros, they need to start looking at this realistically. A few good weeks back a couple of years ago, this is not, a, Jake Myers was not some high-end prospect until yeah. he had a really breakout season, mostly in AAA with the Sugarland Skeeters at the time. It was, I don't think it was the Bay Cowboys yet. But it was mostly a breakout season right. there, and he started off well in the major leagues. And, and then he kind of tailed a little bit going into October, and then he got hurt in the White Sox series. And you saw some potential, but at the same time, he has a history of not being a great hitter as far as contact goes. And that's it's, it's not really their M.O. as, as, as a baseball team. Is you you got to get the ball in play, and you got to make sure that you're not striking out all the time. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, look, through two games, he's had – I think six, maybe seven plate appearances. I'm talking about Myers now, you know, hadn't got a hit yet. I think this is a big year for him, you know, kind of like it's a big year for uh, Forrest Whitley. When I think Forrest Whitley is going to end up helping this ball club. I don't know if Jake Myers is going to end up helping this ball club, but what I do know is that, look, he cracked the opening day roster, and there's a reason for that. It's because, and I'd said this going into spring training, when we talked about, hey, just People were saying, hey, give the job to Chaz. Like, the guy earned it. Well, I'm not saying that he didn't earn it, but I always like there to be a little bit of competition in spring. It was clear to me that Chaz earned that starting nod in center field. Why he didn't get it, I don't know. You know, mistakes can be made, and I think a mistake was made. But I think the Astros and Dusty Baker are trying to give Myers every opportunity to kind of – reclaim that little bit of magic if you want to call it that that he came to the big ball club with a couple of years ago before his injury just to give him that shot if they don't see it within the first month or so um then yeah absolutely and if guys are producing at lower levels younger guys 
you know, guys that you have no problem starting their service time clock on, bring them up, you know, get some production out of them. Maybe Chaz just continues to ball out. Then great, because any one of those scenarios really works. Where you really feel it, Robert, is when Chaz isn't performing, when Myers isn't performing, when DeBond's being his slap hitter self, and you're not getting any punch from the center field lineup outside of like, you know, better than average defense. Dusty, look, Dusty could play around when there was an Altuve in the lineup. You cannot play games with guys that can't hit. And Jake Myers, just yeah. to be clear, Dusty's going to try to tell me, oh, he's a better fielder. Is he? Is he a better fielder? Because we already talked about what happened in game one where he kind of went to the baseball on a, on a on a basically routine play to the center field. Guy goes from first to third on him because he just kind of doesn't go after it aggressively. Number two, there was another play this weekend when, in a second game where he goes back on a fly ball to center field and he takes the wrong angle. The ball hits the warning track. It's a ball that I think if Jake Myers had taken the right path, he would have got there and it would have been an out. Instead, it hits the warning track, bounces over the fence, and it's a double. I mean, those are all fair. Have you seen the the stats after uh, the first weekend of play in Major League Baseball in regards to batting average of balls in play and the influx of pop flies and flyouts and ground balls? Ground balls are around the same as they've been for about the last three or four years, but Major League Baseball hitters are hitting about 30 ticks higher on pop flies and flyouts, uh, or fly balls, rather than they had been in recent years. It sounds like and, Duck snorts to right field, basically, where the second baseman would have been in, in, in deep right. Go back to the play in left field this weekend against the Chicago White Sox. I can't remember their left fielder, who, who it is, his name, but it was a pretty routine-looking fly ball by Jeremy Pena. And the guy's jogging in, not sprinting in, and just kind of lets it fall. Right. And I think at this point, the Astros are up three to two. It was later in the game, I believe. They were up three to two, were down three to two. One of those. Even the broadcast crew was like, huh? <laughs> like, they didn't see the ball well, but they zoomed in on him. And he was like, that bleeping wall, man. And he was playing over there in the crease, you know, at the end of the Crawford boxes, just where it jets out. You know, I was looking at some analysis. And one of the guys, uh, whatever video I was watching, they were saying, well, that's typically where left fielders like to play because they can feel that wall where it jets out versus that weird Crawford box wall. It's so shallow. But I also thought, okay, well, it was a ball in. The wall has no bearing. Like, the ball's in front of you. You just sprint in. So this is nothing you're talking about. This is not has nothing to do with the new rules, you're just saying, guys, this is just happening. New rules. It's just, it's weird that baseball is kind of seeing these, at least through the first weekend of play, right? This influx on batting average balls in play on specifically fly balls and pop flies. Like, why are we seeing this influx of batting average on those kinds of? Well, it's yeah, that, that was my point, though. I, I was saying it's probably happening because. The fly balls that are dropping, not that one in particular, because you're saying this was left field. But yeah, I mean, you cannot get an, an outside of the dirt anymore. Uh, and and we would see these guys playing short right field, second baseman Altuve here in Houston. Yeah, but we maybe. would see these guys out in the grass. I, yeah, you know, if you could do a search and and see like, all right, those balls when they're hit in the shift or out of the shift, you know, depending. On what and you know the ballpark, the dimensions, depending on where guys are playing, that has everything to do with it. It's kind of a way too nerdy thing, but I just kind of like I raised my eyebrows at that a little bit when I saw those numbers this weekend. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but 
maybe two. It's their first time playing in their home ballpark, and maybe they're just trying to get the feel of things. You're just not there yet. Maybe you need a week in your own ballpark or any ballpark to kind of have a feel for it. Three. That's how many, at least three extra hits that the Astros got this weekend, thanks to the shift rules. And I didn't catch if there was any on Sunday, and the Astros didn't get a whole lot of hits on Sunday. But I know the first three days there were three hits that they counted that would definitely have been hits last year. Three hits through the first four games. Like, extrapolate that out. Let's see what that comes out yeah, to. That's a lot more offense, and the offense is up around baseball. Also, um, before we move off the Astros, just uh, a quick get well to former Astro first baseman coach Rich Dower, who suffered a stroke. He's in rehab in Jacksonville. He's in a facility. Dower was on A.J. Hinch's coaching staff from yeah. 2015 to 17. Some of you remember that he collapsed during the Astros championship parade. In downtown in 17 with a subdural hematoma. There is a GoFundMe account for Dower that's raised $30,000. But, Sean, he's he's not in good shape from all reports. Yeah, that's rough. I don't remember him collapsing during the parade. But, man, that's tough to hear. I remember remember him very well. I mean, you know, you say the, the name Dower. And, I mean, one of the first guys you see on any shot when a guy gets a hit or gets on base is that first base coach. Yeah, I mean, all the best to him. Certainly hope for a uh, recovery and just uh, definitely prayers up. All right, let's move to the Texans. Uh, we got a new Texans draft rumor. This one from NBC Sports, Peter King, who says... Been through all of them already, so might as well throw another one in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and he says that there was an anonymous league personnel man that says... The Texans could take Will Anderson with the second pick and then trade up with their number 12 pick for a QB. And Sean, could be something or it could be just Casario playing cat and mouse at this point. Yeah, I, you know, I was just trying to look and watch this draft board real quick. Try to piece together like any logical reason why that would be the case, where the Texans don't go quarterback at number two. Presumably, okay, bear, uh not the Bears, but the Panthers go young, right? And then, okay, let's say Houston, they're not all in on Stroud. They want to go for, as this report said, the cleanest pick. So they go Will Anderson. Arizona doesn't want a quarterback, but if Will Anderson's off the board, who are they looking at? Does somebody trade up with Arizona where they trade down? And whoever trades up with Arizona, what would they be trading up for? Wouldn't it presumably be quarterback? So it's C.J. Stroud goes to number three. Well, what does Indianapolis do? Do they go to Richardson? Do they go to Levis? Like, what quarterback would the Texans be trading back up from 12 for, or even back into the first round for that would make any kind of sense? Well, like, the thing is, if you pass on a quarterback at two, you better be darn sure that he's there if you're targeting a quarterback because these quarterbacks right. go fast. Arizona doesn't need a quarterback. Is it going right. to drop the quarterback? But as we know, they can surely move back and trade with somebody else for one. So now you're battling draft capital with somebody sure. else to move up. And and so what if you're looking at a team like Las Vegas or uh, Atlanta or Tennessee? Um, are they looking at that Arizona pick? When they see Houston doesn't take a quarterback and they're like, oh, we can't let Indianapolis get Stroud or we can't let Indianapolis even think about Richardson. You know, so we're going to try to work a deal with Arizona and, you know, hopscotch Indianapolis. 
for any team, not just the Texans, I'm trying to figure out like what sense it would make because the number one name that I've heard later in drafts, if the Texans don't go quarterback at two and they go Will Anderson and, you know, anybody else like at 12, maybe they even trade back, but they want to get a quarterback. Maybe if it's moving back into the first round, I've heard Hendon Hooker's name a ton. And I don't understand that. Like if, if you're going to take a flyer on a guy like that or him, right? Hendon Hooker specifically, just make this a really boring draft and pick Will Anderson at two and then get you a stud wide receiver at 12 and use that, you know, number 33 pick in the second round for Hendon Hooker. You don't think he's going to be there at that point? I'm just trying to piece this stuff together just versus all of these mock drafts that we've seen. And there have been a ton of them, ton of them. None of it makes any sense for passing up on quarterback at two and then moving back up. For who? Because Stroud's going to be gone. Richardson's going to be gone. Levis, I'm not so sure of. I don't have a good feel for that, but I don't know. I, I don't know where, what you think about Levis, where you think he could theoretically fall. I guess there's a little birdie in his head that he potentially could. That's why he's like, ah, I'm not going to go on draft night if I think I'm going to slip. Well, that's already in his head. He thinks he might slip. Maybe it's less about him and more about Richardson, Young, and Stroud. I don't know. I don't like anybody except for Bryce Young and maybe C.J. Stroud. And frankly, if they do not think that Stroud is good enough to take it to, then don't take a quarterback. That's my thought on it. And here's the deal. I mean, like I said, I, I just don't, you know, we've talked about it. I don't care about these rumors. You know, wake me up when we're there because who are you getting the rumors for? Casario keeps right. a closed circle. He's a Patriots guy. You know, he's a Bill Belichick yeah. guy. He's not going to spill something. He's not going to tell the wrong person. I just don't, he's not that type of uh, executive. I just don't see it. You're hundred percent right. I mean, whatever you hear that somebody's hearing or some anonymous executive from, you know, whatever team you're hearing it because somebody wants you to hear it. Okay. Or wants them, wants Peter King to hear it or, you know, Rappaport, whoever it is to hear that. And yeah, I don't even take it with a grain of salt. It's just like, whatever, I'm with you. However, you know, this is about trying to gauge perception and a feel and a lot of it's fishing. It's all fishing. The thing is, it's like, <laughs> if your NFL team is doing this much fishing, you kind of have to worry a little bit about it. Well, why are they paying so much attention to like public perception maybe or what people are saying or clamoring about? I don't know. What teams find or think is important, you know, it really never ceases to amaze me beyond a certain point, but it's fun. I just think this whole conversation about the cleanest pick, if C.J. Stroud is the best quarterback prospect not named Bryce Young, and he's right there for you to take at number two. In the position that the Texans are in with Davis Mills and Case Keenum waiting back at home for you, like you're telling me it's not worth trying to develop this guy for five years? Five years? Because if he's taken in the first round, you get five years of this cat before you have to even sneeze at. This okay? would be so much easier if they just freaking lost the last game of the season and wasn't it wasn't that hard. Just lose the last game. This was easy. This you. was an easy thing to do. I you, hear you. You could have done I don't, don't want to hear like this Hutchinson, you know, comparison either. Like, okay, yeah, that's what the Lions did last year, you know, in the draft. Like they went best defensive player, like the guy they felt like they can't miss on. There's no guy that's a can't miss i don't care what position he plays i don't care what he looks like what he does it 
doesn't matter. And look, Texan fans, they don't, no fan base knows everything. But J.J. Watt was freaking booed when the Texans took him, you know, 12th. I think it was 12th or 14th, one of those. I, right? I thought Jadavian Clowney was can't miss, wasn't he? Yeah, and <laughs> look, he turned out to have an okay career, right? But nothing spectacular worthy of a number one, number a top five pick. Okay, my whole point with Watt is, is like, if you did a redraft, like, where would he go? What quarterback was taken in 2012 or 11, whatever draft he was in? Like, who was the stud there? And if there wasn't, you're telling me that he wouldn't go number one overall? If you had to do it all over again or a top three easy, are you kidding me? And so like, I don't want to hear all these comparisons like, well, that's what the Texans do and take the cleanest pick. And that guy is Will Anderson. And it's, that's a D'Amico guy, you know, his defensive guy, perfect position. It's what the Texans need. They need to get younger at that position. Fine. But does that supersede getting a pretty darn good prospect at the most important position in your sport at quarterback? I don't know if anybody could really answer that honestly and say no. <laughs> I think it's yes. If, if Stroud's there and you think he's like going to be a dude, you got to take. Yeah, again, I, I, I'm not going to get worked up because I, I just don't know if any of this is just garbage. Um, quick close on something that really kind of frustrated me this weekend. You don't get too many really cool things that happen in sports where you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm really excited. This is, looks like it could be a real event. It looks like it could really be something, but Caitlin Clark in the finals college basketball, women's college basketball had a chance for a real moment on Sunday. And somehow the ball was put on the tee. It was right there in front of them. It was a beach ball size ball that was put up on a tee and they still managed to screw it up. Thanks to the officials that basically said, we're going to make it all about us in the NCAA finals. I was one of many, many people that probably would never watch a women's basketball game. It was a rare chance where it was on the big stage where people were tuning in that were just casuals. And Caitlin Clark was extraordinary in the semifinal game. And she had scored 40 points in the last two games in the, in the tournament going yeah. on that one. And then the, they not only got, Everybody, it seems like, in foul trouble with Iowa, who probably was going to lose anyway. I'm not going to tell you, Iowa should have beaten LSU, even with the officials, because they were obviously the better team. The LSU Tigers were the better team. But Caitlin Clark, having three fouls on her by the end of the first half, then some stupid technical that, you know, I'm watching the... LSU coach Kim Mulkey go up and down the sideline, just barking and screaming at the referees nonstop, even though her team was the beneficiary of a lot of those whistles that we saw in the first half. Yeah. It was just such a blown opportunity. And Caitlin Clark was such a pleasure. Even with all that, she was still a pleasure to watch. And I can't believe that we'll probably get a chance to watch her next year because the WNBA is stupid enough to let college basketball ha have her because they have a rule that says you've got to wait until you're a senior before you can go into the draft. Which would be fine because I'm way more inclined to watch women's college basketball than I am the WNBA. That's maybe just me, but <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, if, uh, any major golf tournament, 
to final four, elite eight, whatever, women, men, I'm kind of there for it. You know, it's the best of the best. And there's a specific amount of games that I have to be dialed in for. I'm not going to be watching random women's college basketball or the WNBA, that's for certain. But yeah, it was uh, it was really cool basketball to watch. I didn't watch the whole game. I watched a really good chunk of it, just enough for uh, all of the Twitter hate to make perfect sense to me. People barking about Kim Mulkey being all over the place and the court and stuff, which I felt like was a little bit overblown. Um, I have no problem but, with what Mulkey was doing. That's yeah. what every coach would do. But <laughs> at the same point, it's the fact that they gave Caitlin Clark a technical. And congratulations to Kim Mulkey, who's had you know, Hall of Fame career. This is her fourth championship. Yeah. She goes over to LSU and almost immediately wins a championship. Really great stuff. You know, she was at Baylor for all those years, as everybody around Texas knows. So congratulations to her. And that LSU team was fantastic. And they had this Carson coming off the bench. I said it was a flashback to the 80s because it looked like the best of Carson because all of a sudden she just gets rolling and can't miss from three. But we could have had a close oh. game with Caitlin Clark that basically reminded me, Sean, of I, I've never got to see. I'm, I'm old, but I'm not old enough to see. I've seen Pistol Pete back when he was in college, but that's who she reminds me of. I mean, she was just, she was a show. She was like the Harlem Globetrotters version of Pistol Pete out there for the women. Yeah, and I can't speak to really that uh, either, but I'll say this. This was a really cool deal for uh, women's college basketball to have a player like that put on that show and have that moxie, that confidence. I mean, I loved it. I know a lot of people didn't. I don't know if you saw Dave Portnoy's uh, comments uh, about Caitlin Clark and her antics, if you want to call it that. No, I think, no, it wasn't Caitlin Clark's antics. He was mad because of the LSU player that, Throw it threw up the sign and all that sort of stuff. At the she was doing that at Clark. Who was that doing it? Uh, was that uh, pool? I'm blanking on her name, but it was the MVP of the, uh, of the game. And, and yeah, that, I didn't care. Like that's, yeah, that, maybe, maybe it was William and Morris. I think it was, I think it was Morris, but yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, yeah. Thank God it wasn't directed at Clark now. Cause like when I saw that, I was thinking like Clark in my head, but it was too Clark. I was like, Oh, Portnoy, I hate him, but no. All right. The hate is rescinded for Portnoy. I just think it was a good deal for college, women's college basketball in general, but I'd like to see her back, uh, in college ball again. Cause I'm personally, and I think a lot more people are, to be honest with you, more inclined to watch and enjoy, uh, if they make it back to another final four, at least make a deep tournament run. No, it was Angel Reese was the player. And just a cor- correction that it was Reese Angel Reese. That, he went after Angel Reese, which I thought was not worth. It wasn't worth making a big example of Angel. There were some people on Twitter, but it was, I don't even want to talk about it because I just thought it was stupid because Caitlin Clark talks back to, I mean, she's a smack talker and yeah. you know, the, the girl, I, I get it's after the game, you're supposed to be nice to the opponent, but if you want to talk smack because <laughs> they, you don't know what was said during the game. You don't know who was talking to who during the game. Yeah. You have no idea. And it's, it's, it's sports. This is sports. Like who cares? They're, they're out there talking smack before the game, after the game. I don't care. It was fun. Reese, you know, backed all of everything she had up with what, how she played on the court and how she played in the tournament and, and, you know, fantastic player as well. But yeah, just the, the hate should be towards the NCAA officiating. And this is just, this is officials in general. They just think they're the event and, and, and and not to have the awareness that like, Hey, everybody's watching this. I don't need to be blowing a whistle every two seconds to start the game. Unless these are, unless I'm sure that these are real fouls. If you want to clean it up a little bit later, that's fine. But these were bad calls. 
we all saw that they were bad calls. So this isn't yeah. like officiating an NBA game where it's going so fast and these guys are moving so quickly. This is college, this is college basketball. This should not be as anywhere near as difficult. I mean, guys, college basketball, I don't think is anywhere near as difficult as the NBA. And the women are, you know, just a, a tad slower. I mean, great athletes, but, you know, they're a little bit slower than the men's. It just didn't make any sense what they no, were but doing. I mean, slower or not, I mean, as an officiating crew, I mean, you got to make a decision. And, you know, it comes down to the film that gives you, you know, kind of like what you're going to go off on. Like, you're scouting these teams, too. Like, all right, I need to look out for this, that, and the other thing. But to me, like, you know, for a championship game, like, you got to let the players play. You know, and anything that's like really egregious or really physical, like, okay, let's step in and you take control of the game there. But you as an officiating crew, your your responsibility is like setting the bar like this is going to be tolerated and this is not, you know, and you got to call it both ways. To me, I just I don't find it that difficult to do. It's when the officiating crew comes out like this, these guys did. And we're like, all right, we're not tolerating any of this. Like, we're going to call, like, every little thing. But it wasn't called both ways, <laughs> you know. And that's where you got to be on the same page. It was almost like, you know, one of them said, like, hey, I'm. this is like Catholic school, like private school. And you're going to get popped on the hand with a ruler every time you're out of line. And then there was another one who thinks they're the disciplinarian in a public school. <laughs> Like but there was a lot of calls against LSU early in the game, too. But the LSU calls, I thought, were more legit. They were fouling them. Yeah. And there were calls against Iowa that I just thought they got wrong. But there was just a lot of calls. There was just a lot of whistles. I hate whistles that, you know, take up an entire important game like that. And, and the, the biggest thing was they got some stuff wrong with Caitlin Clark. And that's the only thing that mattered in that game. The only thing yeah. that mattered as a sport was the Caitlin Clark thing. I, I just don't want to get caught up in everything else with this game. I just want to just, that's what I wanted to focus on. Um, it was fun as far as up and down. LSU scored over 100 points. I mean, obviously some of them were free throws, but they also made a ton of shots in that game. They were shooting red hot from the outside. Of course, Caitlin Clark was red hot from the outside as she typically is. Uh, I think she hit eight of her first 16 threes. She probably chucked a few at the end. I don't know what her final stats were, but... Oh, you know, three, she starts she off by like throwing up a 30 footer like Steph Curry right off the bat. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God, it's on. And then the officials just said we, we, we've had enough. Let, let me close with a quick thing on um, we're going to have special guest Greg Lucas, who's been on the show nice. many, many times, uh, well over 25, 30 times over the last 10 years of the show. And Greg. Uh, as many of you will remember, many years on the Astros broadcast, on the Rockets broadcast, we're going to stick uh, to Astros, but he, he called everything in Houston sports for 25, 30 years. He's been, you know, was in the business for many, many years, retired, but still keeps up with everything that's going on. He's as sharp as ever. I just talked to him, got off the phone with him and talked to Astros this weekend. And, you know, he's, he's up with everything. He knows what's going on. So looking forward to having Greg Lucas on the show. He's the man. I always uh, enjoy his tweets and uh, Facebook rants on uh, anything ball. So that'll be fun. All right. We'll talk to you guys again on Thursday. Maybe some Rockets between now and then. I'm trying to work it out with our guy, Frank. But if we don't see you between now and Thursday, uh, let's check, check for the Astros. But uh, make sure you're subscribed. Got to subscribe to the show. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.
Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.